In the Davidic dialectic, David, king of Israel, feels himself both subject and object, actor, but also God acting through him. David plays political three-dimensional chess, and yet he remains in his mind, a pawn in the designs of the Almighty, feeling it a privilege to be that pawn held in God's heavenly hand. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 199, The Fox, the Hedgehog, and Davidic Statesmanship. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In his memoirs, Winston Churchill describes his state of mind when he was appointed prime minister by the king. This was the most daunting moment in British history. France was falling. The Nazis had swept across the continent. America and the Soviet Union were not yet in the war. And yet, Churchill writes, quote, I cannot conceal from the reader of this truthful account a profound sense of relief. At last, I had the authority to give directions over the whole scene. I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And he adds, I thought I knew a good deal about it all, and I was sure I should not fail. Therefore, although impatient for the morning, I slept soundly and had no need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams. End quote. For many great statesmen, it is precisely their confidence in themselves and their delight in being in charge that is a source of their strength. The reader feels this in Churchill's memoir. Confidence is a character trait that David had as well, but the overwhelming sense of humility in the face of God's providence that David constantly illustrates is somewhat lacking in Churchill's memoir. Churchill did indeed believe in destiny and in God, but as the historian Andrew Roberts once put it, in Churchill's theology, God's job seemed mainly to be safeguarding the well-being of Winston Churchill. Now, do we begrudge Churchill his self-confidence, his delight in being in control, his seeming belief that his very will could win the war? Not at all. I cite this not as criticism of Churchill, whose example never ceases to inspire, but rather as a form of contrast. And it is quite clear that in Churchill's case, his own confidence in himself allowed him to be a bulwark in the face of the impotence of Chamberlain and much of the free world facing Hitler. William Manchester's biography of Churchill reports that once, when in an argument with his butler, Churchill commented, you were very rude to me, said the butler, you were very rude to me as well. And Churchill replied, yes, but I am a great man. We hear such stories and we laugh, but the author, William Manchester, notes that he had heard the story from the butler and that the butler had added, quote, there was no answer to that. He knew, as I and the rest of the world knew, that he was right, end quote. He was right. Churchill was a great man, and he himself knew it. David, however, is different. As David becomes king, as he defends Israel against his enemies and helps form his kingdom, he too, like Churchill, gives us a window into his mind again and again not through a memoir, but through the Psalms. And there is one trait that is central throughout that lies at the core of his greatness, and that is his lack of focus on his greatness and his humble attribution of all of his achievements to someone other than himself. That is why the Psalms allow us to gain a glimpse not only of one of the most extraordinary of souls, but also one of the greatest leaders that ever lived. The next many Psalms, we are told by the Bible, are from David, and most of them have one central theme, that all of his successes, his defeat of his enemies, are ultimately entirely attributable to the Almighty. Here is David's opening and closing in Psalm 4. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, O Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. The same theme can be found in Psalm 5, verse 9. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. 
Make thy way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulchre. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. Again, Psalm 7, verse 2. O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me, and deliver me. And Psalm 9, verse 4. When mine enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. For thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sittest in thy throne, judging right. Again, Psalm 11. God gets all the credit for defeating David's enemies. Upon the wicked he shall rain fiery coals, fire and brimstone. Psalm 17. Arise, O Lord, disappoint him, cast him down, deliver my soul from the wicked with thy sword. And then Psalm 20, a beloved psalm, a psalm often said by Jews in moments of crisis, which feature the following famous verses, starting with verse 7. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are rising and stand upright. In other words, one of the most proactive individuals in human history The man who fought Goliath when no one else would sees God as the supreme actor. David says this most openly in Psalm 16. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The word for lot here is goral. It is a reference to fate determined by God. David simultaneously acts individually, courageously, and freely and recognizes God as the one who allows him to succeed. This humility is, I think, distinctly biblical, Hebraic. We have previously cited Leon Cass, who noted the difference between Athens and Jerusalem by commenting that, quote, the peak of the Aristotelian ethical virtues is the great-souled man, the man of consummate nobility and goodness, who goes in the city as if he were a god, end quote. In contrast, to adopt a Jewish approach to humility is to embrace a dialectic. One is obligated simultaneously, I think, to believe that great statesmen act within history with courage and confidence. And for the Bible, this is an aptitude to be admired. And yet, on the other hand, this awareness for Judaism must be combined with humility, which is a recognition that there is something, someone much greater than the statesman who is truly in charge. Cass furthers the contrast by citing Aristotle, who describes the great-souled man wondering at nothing. A perspective, he notes, that would not be recognized as virtuous by the Bible. In a similar sense, I would add that the statesman for Jewish thought must simultaneously act within history and yet wonder at God's hand in history. As I put it in my Tikva lectures on statesmanship, in the Davidic dialectic, David, king of Israel, feels himself both subject and object, actor, but also God acting through him. David plays political three-dimensional chess, and yet he remains in his mind, a pawn in the designs of the Almighty, feeling it a privilege to be that pawn held in God's heavenly hand. Thus, as I further argue, David's leadership in Israel is complex and inspiring in its complexity. Isaiah Berlin, in a famous essay, divided statesmen, writers, thinkers, and leaders into two categories, foxes and hedgehogs, in the spirit of the Greek saying that the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. Hedgehogs from Berlin have one single vision that defines everything whereas foxes respond in different ways to diverse situations. This is probably the most famous essay of Berlin's career. As John Lewis Gaddis writes in his book on grand strategy, long before the internet, the essay went viral, quote, 
You had to be one or the other, Berlin seemed to be saying. You couldn't be both and be happy or effective or even whole. Berlin was therefore surprised, Gaddis continues, but puckishly pleased when his creatures went viral long before there was an internet to help them along. References began proliferating in print. Cartoons appeared requiring no explanation. And in university classrooms, professors began asking their students, was X, who could be any historical or literary figure, a fox or a hedgehog, end quote. The problem, as Gaddis further notes, is that the essay is wrong because the truth is that great statesmen are simultaneously hedgehogs and foxes. Like foxes, they innovate in the face of the uniqueness of the challenge they are addressing. But they also never lose sight of a central principle that guides their life. David was a fox. His creativity, his political inventiveness never ceases to astonish. Facing Goliath, he devises the one strategy that turns his opponent's size into a weakness. Running away from Saul, his only option to take refuge among the Philistines, who are the enemies of Israel, he feigns madness like Hamlet in order that he not be seen as a threat. And he establishes a capital city in the specific territory that will help unite his people. David is a fox, but he is also a hedgehog because his one central principle remained always his reliance on God, his attribution of all his success to God, and his desire to reflect this to his people throughout his life. A crafty fox he was, but he was also, if I may say, a holy hedgehog, because what he understood above all is the providential miracle that his life embodied, and he strove in his psalms to teach Israel to see God as he did. This Davidic dialectic is one that is rarely seen in great Western statesmen, but perhaps because of the Hebraic impact on America, it can be seen in America's greatest leader. In 1864, Lincoln wrote to the Kentucky politician and editor Albert Hodges, explaining his rationale in issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln well understood the historic and bold nature of his act. And Lincoln explains to Hodges why he chose to do what he did. And then he adds the following, quote, In telling this tale, I attempt no compliment to my own sagacity. I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that events have controlled me. Now, at the end of three years' struggle, the nation's condition is not what either party or any man devised or expected. God alone can claim it. Whither it is tending seems plain. If God now wills the removal of a great wrong and wills also that we of the North as well as you of the South shall pay fairly for our complicity in that wrong, impartial history will find therein new cause to attest and revere the justice and goodness of God. End quote. Similarly, to the Quaker leader Eliza Gurney, Lincoln said, quote, We are indeed going through a great trial, a fiery trial, in the very responsible position in which I happen to be placed, being a humble instrument in the hands of our Heavenly Father as I am, And as we all are, to work out his great purposes, I have desired that all my works and acts may be according to his will, and that it might be so, I have sought his aid. But if after endeavoring to do my best in the light which he affords me, I find my efforts fail, I must believe that for some purpose unknown to me, he wills it otherwise. End quote. Political boldness and humility can coexist in a complex way. As the historian David Bob has put it, quote, Lincoln's mature political thought was carefully honed and had a theological richness unrivaled in American history, Abraham Lincoln demonstrated that humility gives us eyes to see that we are not God. And Bob adds, Lincoln knew that he was not a purely passive instrument. God's power never divests us of responsibility. Humility is not inaction combined with hope that things will work out. However much Abraham Lincoln spoke of himself as a humble instrument in the hands of the Almighty, he never lapsed into inactivity. End quote. The lesson of David is that a statesman must act boldly and independently at times. But that very same statesman 
must respond to his or her own success, not with self-aggrandizement, but rather to see oneself as hopefully acting within God's providential plan. It is rare that we find leaders like this, but that is why memories of how they lived and how they led should not perish from the earth. This is Mayor Soloveitchik looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.